One year ago, when I walked into a bakery and cafe in downtown Washington, D.C. to meet this episode's guest, I overheard an iconically American greeting between two people. Oh my gosh, how are you? Where have you been? And now, a year later on this, the eve of the 2020 U.S. election, I hope more than ever people across the states are saying this classic greeting to each other while they meet with masks on in line to vote. So, in the spirit of today, whether you are waiting in a queue to tick your preferences or you're sitting at home waiting for results, here is a conversation with political satirist for The Washington Post, author and playwright Alexandra Petri, where we talk about her career for the past four years of her life writing satirical news coverage of the Trump administration. Hey, Hello! How are you? Great, how are you? Good, good to see you. Likewise. How's your morning been? Good. Yeah? I just filed, I think I'm all set to go. Awesome. Well then let's do this. Shall we? Yeah. Alexander Petrae is a columnist for the Washington Post. Her satire has also appeared in McSweeney's and The New Yorker, in other newspapers, on the radio and on TV. She's also appeared on a number of podcasts, was on Rolling Stone's list of the funniest people right now, Forbes 30 Under 30, as well as receiving a plethora of awards for her humor writing and her incredible pun making skills. One of my favourite things about Alex is that she brings her entire brain to our conversation and you can hear how a life of drinking up the world around her has led to her very specific and often beloved point of view in her comedy. She makes these quick references to moments and figures in the history of culture, literature and philosophy to be specific about exactly what she's saying or trying to say. And Alex's intertextual style taught me things I didn't know. So at times, if she's referencing something like Herodotus and you don't know what a Herodotus is or how to make one, please do as I did and use your search engine so that you too can discover that Herodotus was an ancient Greek historian and the father of Western historical inquiry as we know it. But first... Pie. As I am in America for another five days, I feel like I have a responsibility to buy pumpkin pie. Yeah. We should do it. I've never had their pumpkin pie. Would you like anything? I'd give myself a cupcake of some sort. Before we go anywhere, Alex, where are we? Uh, we're in a coffee shop. I noticed before, when I was weirdly sitting behind you doing my own work, that you work here sometimes. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you pick this place? What is it that you love about it? I like the experience of like being in a place that is A, not an office, and B, not just like my bed, which are the, the two other places where I, I would be writing. Because I'm like, oh, I put on clothes, I left the house, and now I get to have coffee as a reward for having done both of those things. And they have great coffee and also a wonderful quiche, which I have a deep enthusiasm for. Quiche is amazing. Quiche so. is so good. It's it's egg pie. It's truly the highest form of breakfast. Quiche is the highest form of breakfast. Sounds like something we need to put on a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, sous vide egg bites at Starbucks are also a high form of breakfast. Oh, wow. Okay. Because, like, breakfast really needs to be an incentive for, to get you up. So, like, a bar with a sad name is not going to generate the sign of enthusiasm that quiche, for instance, will. And it's like a really hearty stomach-lining meal. Yeah. You can't take painkillers with muesli. You're going to puke them up. But with a quiche... Oh, yeah. You can. 
No, literally like the day of like my wedding. I like the onion quiche and I'm just like, I, I still want it. I want the one with all the onions and I'm, that's what I want for breakfast and also possibly lunch. And I may have a quiche problem, but... Well, it's been revealed now, so at least yeah. you can do something about it, right? Exactly. Which is eat The first quiche. step is asking for quiche. I'm going to take these cupcakes because you should be allowed to freely enjoy your cold brew. Yes. Now, you're going to lead us back to your place. Ooh. <laughs> this is great. If anyone who listens wants to like come and like rob my house, oh, um, <laughs> if you want some very old books, like that's... No, we'll be vague about that. But yes. the thing I'm more interested in is the fact that we're walking. And the reason why I'm interested in the fact that we're walking is because when I was doing a bit of Alex research, Ooh. I came across a really great set of Goodreads questions that... <laughs> I know what you're referring to. <laughs> fans of yours had written to ask you questions. And I was really impressed by the number of people who had asked you about things like writer's block. And one of the things that you mentioned that you do to kind of work with the block is you go walking. Yes. At what point do you recognize that you are blocked? Well, sometimes the, the, one of the things that happens is I will write an entire piece only to realize after having written it that it was not the best version of the idea possible and that I need to completely rewrite it and start all over again, which is like, I don't know, it's like a walking cold of writer's block. It's like, oh, I did something, but the thing was crap. Um, <laughs> Often it'll just be like, I know what I'm writing about. I have no idea how I'm writing about it. Like, it's usually like a how type block. Um, or I'll think that I have an idea. Or I'll have what I think is a complete idea. And then I'll be like, oh, great. Well, that's all set. And I don't need to worry about it. And then I'll, like, actually start writing it. I'm like, that was two paragraphs. I have nothing. And that's when you sort of realize that assistance is needed. So this idea of the how, I imagine, is particularly challenging for you. I say this as not you, obviously, <laughs> because you are churning out satire pretty much every day of your life about currently largely the Trump administration and its antics. Yeah. And that requires a really particular kind of stamina. I remember when shows like Samantha Bee started to talk about the fact that because Trump was elected, they were going to focus a lot on making sure that his behavior and the administration's behavior was never classed as normal. Yeah. But again, that is a very tiresome, tiring thing. So I'm wondering in terms of how you've gone about kind of treating this time in American politics as like a writing marathon. Yeah. Like what, what tactics you've used and how you've actually had patience with coming up with new material pretty much every day. But I would say the thing about these days is like one of the worst things people always say is like, oh, like, you must feel so lucky that like there's so much to write about i'm like absolutely effing not like that's it i i wish that none of these things were happening and i had to like work really hard to like make the boring thing that an administration that wasn't dismantling like norms and lives at a record rate was doing like maybe there's some sort of joke about this secretary of the interior who's doing a thing like like a really minor thing that would be fun uh and preferable but Instead of that, there is just like everyday 18 things. And so it's more a question of like, what do you pick to not write about than it is of like, oh, like really have to dig today. But yeah, it can be exhausting. And the thing about it is people who do like serious reporting are having the same thing where you have an election level of news mm -hmm. every day, even though, and this was like for the past like, 
three-ish years when there wasn't an election also going on, there are still 18 things that are on fire at all times. So it is, it's like a, you're sort of treading water and also people are throwing things at you. I think I've described water polo, but I don't actually know. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I really admire about the work that you do is that constantly writing funny stuff about this period of time in history is kind of scary and yet you do it every single day and I'm wondering if you ever feel any fear about it if you ever felt any fear about it and what you tell yourself and how you kind of get through it well I think it's one of those things we're like last weekend I was I was rock climbing for a friend's birthday and uh I'm terrified of heights, and so I, but I always forget that until I'm, I'm up physically on the height, and then I'm like, oh, I remember now. I'm, that, that was the thing. I was scared of heights. Uh, heights are bad. Why did I do this? But some, like some of the climbing, because it was sort of a puzzle, or it, like, and I had to like spend my whole brain being like, how do I get from point A to point B, and not like looking down or thinking about the fact that I was scared of heights. Like the, the puzzle of it made it less scary. And so I guess insofar as... It is scary, and I like, I, you know, I get my share of like the mean emails. Although I think not as many as a lot of folks. Uh, I'm lucky in that regard. Um, but it's more like, how do I hopefully keep doing this every day in a way that makes it somewhat fresh and keeps the surprise there? And like that, by the time I've done that, I'm like, oh, it's enough of a puzzle that it's less frightening than if I remembered that it was scary, I would do a worse job <laughs> so I try not to remember that like I haven't found it to be that scary but maybe that's naive of me you know, the other thing that I find really fun about your work is that when you read your satire there is an element of fancy and delight to it right <laughs> there's always play involved and I wonder how you find delight in or how you find that play in covering stuff like most recently the piece that you had on the Washington Post about turning the impeachment proceedings into a Hallmark Christmas film. Well that joke sort of wrote itself because one of the lines of questioning that was being brought, representative gone away, uh, was he was like so like you know sure you lost your post ambassador but you wound up in Georgetown, which is a way nicer place than Ukraine. Your colleagues haven't lost their professional respect for you. They don't shun you in the cafeteria. So, like, wouldn't you say it worked out? And another of the representatives pointed out that he said that. And was like, so it's like a Hallmark movie. It all worked out well. And it's, it's sometimes things are just palpably absurd. You don't have to really do much to them you just sort of write exactly what happened and people say man what an amazing pose law is being invoked for us right now and when the ideas don't come easily and you go walking let's say mm -hmm. what about the walking helps well, i think just having to move in a direction in some sort of way and also having to just like not being able to write sometimes makes it easier to come up with the idea like when you're like physically constrained from being able to do something and then I'll be like oh I have the idea and then I'll like write it on my phone or I'll do something just to if so, anything comes to me but like not being sitting in front of the screen trying to think of what I'm supposed to say it can actually be the moment when like you do think of 
the thing to say. Oh, dog. Yeah, having a pee. Yeah. Oh no. Oh, it was yeah, a fresh poop. Everything. That dog is crushing it. It was a golden retriever, everybody. Hey, it's Rosie. It's time for The Dose, a segment where a comedy writer talks up the things they're enjoying at the moment to thrive in this time in history. This episode's guest is humour writer and comedic storyteller Gigi Lee. Gigi's humour writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, McSweeney's, The Belladonna and Reductress. As a comedic storyteller, she has performed all around New York City and has hosted the Moth Storytelling events at Bernard College. Gigi, tell us your faves. Hello, Antidote listeners. I'm Gigi Lee, and I'm here with my highbrow, middlebrow, and lowbrow recommendations. For highbrow, I actually have two picks, because that's how highbrow and literary I am. When I read classic books, it's not very often, so I have to show off when I do. So I pick... Uh, Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens and Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. These books had been sitting on my shelf for a while. I guess I had been avoiding them because when I think classics, I think hard to read and understand. And I think of school. But luckily I had a lot of free time on my hands, so I picked them up. And they were both so great. I mean, they were page turners and they were funny. And by the end, I was sobbing. Um, Yeah, I like a book that makes me feel like I am experiencing a range of emotions. And I I won't tell you too much about them because I actually didn't know anything about these books before I read them. And it was just kind of like a nice surprise because I just had no idea what to expect. I read them a month ago and I still recall passages from time to time and they still bring me to tears so yeah if you want to read something that's going to make you cry definitely definitely you want to read these my middle brow pick is the spanish tv series high seas or altamar in spanish it's by the same people that did grand hotel which is another uh great spanish tv series and it's so fun it takes place on um a cruise liner remember cruise ships it's set in post-world war ii so there's these fantastic period costumes and it has lots of soapy elements so think merger intrigue and there are nazis involved oh my god and there are fun female characters and it's it's just great it's such a nice escape it's not too taxing on the brain and just really visually appealing and everyone is very attractive so yeah uh, i highly recommend for lowbrow i'm actually going to talk about food during this time i have been eating what someone would consider lowbrow food Uh, a lot of hot dogs tater tots meatballs from costco french onion dip like if it is something that you would serve at a super bowl party i will gladly eat it for french onion dip you don't have to go fancy i just get some sour cream some lipton's french onion soup mix and voila you have this beautiful creamy dip this pairs well with potato chips my potato chips of choice is uh utz chips you gotta get the ruffle kind okay they are classic salty crispy um a perfect vehicle 
for the French onion dip, and you can snack on that while you're watching High Seas, and you will be so happy. Um, these foods have brought me a lot of comfort and joy during this time. That was humor writer and comedic storyteller Gigi Lee. To find out more about her and all of the guests on today's show, you can check out the show notes for this episode. And now we return to our conversation with Alexandra Petri, where we have just arrived at Alex's house in a leafy suburb lined with tall, elegant townhouses. In a quiet downstairs area, we sit at a long wood table in a corner dressed entirely with lengths of mirror on the walls. The open plan also features a lounge, a kitchenette, a decent cabinet of wine, and... That's a takeout (laughs) container, and... um... You actually have a really great red coat hanging up on the coat rack, which I very much admire, so... Oh, yeah. No, my mom's always making fun of me for it, because she's like, that's a... You certainly don't go go unnoticed in that coat, and I'm like, all right, yes, that's true. I'm going to take a couple of steps back and head into your youth with you. Wow, time oh, and space youth. journey. Yeah. Do you think you were a funny kid growing up? I was certainly a weird kid. <laughs> I think, yes, I was I was funny. Uh, I, I certainly tried to do satire. I started this humor parody newsletter called The Perturbed Squirrel. Um, at first, I, it was something that I would just send to my friends at the end of each summer to be like, here's what I've been doing. But it was like written in like the Onion style. And then freshman year at school I'm like maybe this would be a thing that everyone would enjoy and so I started it as like an official club and so that yeah when I was 14. What kind of things would you put into that newsletter? Well I had this whole thing called like Bush announces plans for war on weather which was uh at the time really just cutting edge satirical stuff <laughs> like I went to an all-girls high school and so I had like the very first one we had was like we're going co-ed and everyone was like oh my god are we really going co-ed and it was the first time of like people being like oh th- they believed this thing that I wrote as a joke but um <laughs> there were like I think like the fourth graders were like no I I don't believe it uh but they they did believe it and that was the trouble so this newsletter had some some level of sway in terms of, I mean, you were already achieving one of the things that people find so hilarious about satire, which is cutting so close to the truth that people believe it. Yeah. Although I feel like these days, like the truth is doing most of the work for you. The truth is like coming around. It's like, good, good luck making any jokes, people who make jokes. Was there a point in time as you've kind of developed those muscles of comedy and satire and writing where you had to sit down and work out how to up your game or has it always been very innate to you I think I'm always trying to up my game there's so many different things that inspire you as a writer and one of them is when you see someone who does something that you like could never do and you're like that's incredible and I'm so excited that this person is alive doing this thing because I could never do that and I want to get all of their books and just like put me on the Ann Carson poetry mailing list and like we're good so there's that kind of admiration and then there's when you see someone and they've written exactly the perfect thing and you'd been trying all day long to think like what is the thing that I could write to make fun of this thing and you kept thinking and you thought of a bunch of ideas and then they just came out with this perfect one like I'm trying to remember, there were a couple of examples. There was this, I can go back and like, look, it's like on like the newyorker.com, like our Eric Thomas did this hilarious piece about this, I think it was, 
I'm blanking on what it was. All I knew is I'd been banging my head against it all week long. And then he went and wrote like the perfect thing. Um, or like all of the toast when like when the toast started to exist I'm just like this is where the humor is because like growing up like on the internet I, I, my first sort of humor idol was like Ali Brosh I'm just like everything that Ali Brosh does is amazing I love all the stick figures and like I had this MS paint phase that certain editors of mine still remember and then but then after the toast came out I'm just like oh my god I'm a full Cliff Ortberg stan like sign me up so uh just people and Lindy West like just people who are figuring out how do you write on the internet specifically as a medium in a way that's different than like oh like here's your Robert Benchley keep doing the Robert Benchley thing which had been sort of like what I was reading growing up and thinking like this is what you could do it's like no actually this is what you could do there's so much more so like seeing people who explored the possibilities of the medium made me really want to up my game you live a lot of your job on the internet you have from what I've seen like you have I don't think it's a I don't think that's a bad thing I think it's actually just as you, would you were saying say I'm extremely online I'd say you were on the on the spectrum I would say you were extremely online the most online you realistically your work is largely published online it is circulated online you are known as viral that is a word that is often associated with your writing I'm pretty sure it's like on the back of your latest book it says that (laughs) you are a you know Washington Post viral columnist oh nuts I thought it said I was virile Uh, I gotta go change that (laughs) you have to change that fast (laughs) but it's a work environment and I'm wondering as you've grown up and continued to work on the internet the kinds of things that working on the internet has made you aware of that you perhaps would not have received in a day-to-day nine-to-five job where you were writing for print publications or even just being like a standard journalist that kind of has this still has has these two worlds of like print and online yeah I think that's a that's a really interesting question and I'm not sure my answer will be as interesting but it's definitely you get exposed sort of in real time to people responding to things in a way that before you, you you would sort of like see a thing and then you would go into your room and you'd be like what did I think about this thing and then you would say what you thought about the thing and now it's like not only are you in your room thinking about what you think about the thing but you can also see what everyone else is thinking about the thing and you can see people who like maybe you wouldn't bump into in the office uh who are like having vastly different perspectives than you would have being like actually here's something that I know about the thing from my like lived experience and that is not getting picked up about this and so the internet's like a, a fun place to go and like listen to people and just hopefully get as much perspective as you can on things. How do you separate the online from the lived everyday tactile world in terms of switching off at the end of the day? Switching off at the end of the day, that's a thing that you can do? I don't know if it is anymore, man. I I keep (laughs) thinking about this because it's like, on the one hand, the internet is where a lot of my friends live and I enjoy the constant stream of everything that's interesting and the world piped into my hand at any time of day it's very hard to say no to it's like the ring of gaijis i think i can't remember what the ring of gaijis was but i i don't know what the ring of gaijis is like well maybe that just makes you invisible it either makes you invisible or gives you everything you want i think it just makes you invisible wow i'm really failing on my herodotus herodotus recall portion of the interview is a fail terrible um no it's just like this amazing cornucopia of delights but also it can be like you just sit there reloading the page. And like when Twitter's like, you've reloaded the page too many times in the past minute, I'm like, this is sad. And this is a referendum. Like a lot of like my favorite hobbies are sad referendums on my life when viewed through a different lens or even the same lens. I'm like doing a thing and I'm like, no, I'm aware that this is deeply sorrow making. That would actually be a great opening line for a book. Your life has been a series of 
<laughs> sad, sad referendums. referendums. Yeah, <laughs> like 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 twenty sixteen, a sad referendum. Um, but I think having human friends has been like the most helpful thing because it's like, oh, if I have to look forward to having dinner with my friend who's a really good cook, and then we're gonna watch TV, but not the internet, and see, we'll be bonding and having a heart to heart conversation, and having my husband Steve, who he's a good man, uh, who who likes protein um <laughs> that is the marker of a good man if ever i've heard one no but he, he likes other things he's like really into the holy roman empire and so he's always like listening to podcasts about it so i now know who otto the first was so it's good to have that in my life uh just to really check my impulse to think Otto the first was cool so having an offline life is cool because it's also like i feel like my online persona it's both an authentic expression of myself, but it's not a, like a full expression of everything. Like I really respect people who are like online and they're like, I'm having a really rough day. And like, I barely made it out of bed today and I'm telling the internet about it. And on days like that, it's like, oh, there's nothing coming out of Petri's feed. <laughs> Probably it's fine. So I feel like internet me is like, it's me being enthusiastic about all the things that I'm enthusiastic about, but it's also like, sometimes you just got to see a real person and do a real thing. What would you say the key markers of your personality online and in your satire are? If you were to say Alex Petrae is a person on the internet and you were to describe yourself. I would say enthusiasm, puns, and I'd rather be like nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing to quote title of show. And so like, if you're like, here's a joke that I think is hilarious because I'm like obsessed with this one very tiny book from like the E.M. Forster back catalog and I can like put a joke about that somewhere and like the other like six people who were like we love that as well like we'll like that I think that's something I always am trying to sort of whisper into the internet the uh floating message bottle jokes not to be like deliberately obscure just to be like maybe people who liked this will also like that you're actually just narrowing down into the thing that you love and going this is enough and putting that online for a while i was like really worried about like what is my persona online going to be early starting out i'm like everything i type has to be completely perfect because it's going to be there forever and now i'm just like well that's impossible (laughs) so i will just be as earnest and enthusiastic as i can because i like earnestness i'm like a big big team like yay being earnest Uh, oscar wilde said a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing but i think being earnest and being vulnerable is insofar as you can by like actually liking publicly the things that you do like can be cool and a useful way of connecting to people as opposed to just being like everything sucks and I'm much cooler and smarter than anything that people might ever be excited by so I hope that I'm not that although I do tend to like snark about things I'm not snark is a tool <laughs> snark is a tool yeah Another great T-shirt from you. Yeah, Snark no, is I'm just cool. oh, I should show you the T-shirt I'm wearing now, which is I. Uh, someone on the internet sent me this because I was tweeting a lot about ham, and my shirt just says "Sorry about all the ham content" <laughs> because I was apologizing for tweeting so much about ham, and then I got this in the mail at the office, and now I just have it. Do you have many people reach out to you with expressions of fondness for you? I'll periodically, like someone sent me a petri dish ornament for a Christmas tree, which I have. Well, once I wrote this thing complaining about Heineken and said it tasted like warmed urine or something, and then Heineken sent me a six-pack, which seemed like an unusual response to the article, but I think for ethics reasons, I didn't drink it. How does it feel to have people contact you and express to you that you're interesting and fun and valuable by essentially playing with you? I, I really like it. Like, that's what sort of keeps me powering through 
because I know that like one of the questions that anyone who's trying to do comedy right now is always struggling with is like a like are we like accidentally normalizing things like b like you know it's just sort of the exhaustive fire hose of news but to the extent that people are like this helped me get through my day especially people who were like their actual job is doing something really useful that's tangibly impacting people's lives then it's worth it conversely this whole podcast is about your writing and your experience as comedy writers but so far I haven't actually asked anybody about sexism directly and I'm not sure why I can't tell if it's because I don't want this to be about that thing but at the same time it's a very realistic component of the world in which we function as writers being an incredibly funny woman who is writing about politics in a world where currently the political climate is very very skewed toward patriarchal dominance do you encounter sexism and which types are the most effective or potent in your life i think it's hard to move through the world in 2019 without encountering sexism and like one of the, my frustrations i think growing up like my feminist journey was i'm like oh they probably fixed it they probably fixed it in like the 70s or something and like there isn't sexism anymore and then i like emerged into the world and was like oh no just kidding i apologize for thinking that this was fixed um which is a really like a huge position of privilege to like even think that things might have been fixed and so bumping up against that has been informative. But I think like you encounter two kinds, one of which is you'll get an email being like, you know, you expletive, go do a anatomically improbable thing or whatever, um, or do a physically harmful thing or whatnot. But then you'll also get people who are like, oh, you know, not that many women are funny. It's cool that you're like a funny woman, which is like in this era, a strange, like it's not a compliment anymore. It's just like a sad referendum, another sad referendum on that person's experience. So I feel like you get both the compliment that you're like, oh, no, please don't. And you get the insult. And I get both of those. I mean, I think that sort of notwithstanding, that's more like in the ether and like on a day-to-day basis of just like getting to have a platform and getting to do what I do. Like, I have that and I'm tremendously grateful for that. It's like a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, of course, of course you're fortunate to do what you do. Like, I can tell and hear and see that it brings you joy, which is ultimately what comedy is for many people who want to pursue it. And it's wonderful to read your work and always see how much joy it brings you, even when you're covering really tough things and really topical things and often like <laughs> extremely politicized yeah. things, weirdly enough. Yeah, well, joy and rage, I would <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah, those, those two. Um. But that's, I mean, that is, that does seem to be what, what your job involves is like juggling joy and rage in a yeah. very particular way yeah what is the emotional landscape and the practicality of juggling joy and rage for you it was like in like x-men first class where magneto's like uh the point between rage and serenity is where his power comes from i saw that movie in theaters like four times it was tremendous i very much enjoyed it but i think it all gets back to sort of the what's and the hows of writing. Cause like the what is often like, I'm infuriated by something that's going on. And it's just like, I can't believe that what like, you know, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford is testifying and she's being treated this way. Or like, I can't believe we're just confirming this man or just, it would be nice if we lived in a world where those things were just obviously not possible. And instead it's like, oh, these things are happening. So it's like trying to write Candide from inside Candide, except fortunately not as bad. Although unfortunately no sheep who are red in hue, which would be cool to have. So I think the rage is what pushes forward. But if you aren't also able to find sparks of joy in there, then it gets harder to make people laugh 
And so trying to wrap the bad news in a modicum of mirth. So the how becomes the joy. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm so far from any nouns in this sentence that I'm, but yeah, I think, because like sometimes you become incoherent with rage, but sometimes you become coherent with rage. And that I think is what powers a lot of my writing. So channeling your rage into these spectacular moments that we get to see online and also being in the online world is a little different to the kind of work and time that goes into an offline publication, like, say, a book. I believe you have a book, Alex. I sure do. And it's called Nothing Is Wrong and Here Is Why. And basically, like, in the course of writing columns for the past four plus years, I realized that if you strung them together, you were drafting kind of a rough draft of the history of the past four years, a very heightened, nightmarish rough draft, but a rough draft nonetheless. And so I thought that could be a book. And it turned out it could be a book. And I've also written some new stuff to sort of strangle it together, strangle it together. Really just you should buy it for the cover because the cover is amazing. Um, It's Cronus devouring his children, like the Goya painting. And he's got a little hat, like a MAGA hat. And it's anyway, it's truly, truly a work of art. Goya did the underlying painting, but the designer was Jim Tierney. And the overall, like, packager was Ing Su Liu. But the cover, the cover is so good. I'm very pleased with the cover. From what I've read about the book, the thing that really fascinates me about Nothing Wrong in Here is Why is that it seems to take on this premise that everything truly is wonderful at the moment and heightens this delusion to kind of highlight its impossibility. And it's a really potent satirical tool to engage in that kind of flight of fancy because it proves exactly the opposite thing and it's this really clear and sickening premise but it's a satirical tone that not everybody has taken in their coverage of the past four years and I'm wondering how you developed this kind of everything's fine approach. I would say two things, which is my fa- one of my favorite stories ever is The Little Match Girl, which is this ridiculously over-the-top, deeply melodramatic and depressing tale by Hans Christian Andersen about this young match seller who like freezes to death in the snow after she can't go home because her family situation is bad and she can't sell any of her matches and so she keeps lighting these matches and seeing these visions of like here's a turkey here's a Christmas tree here is her grandmother coming to bear her up with the angels and on the one hand it's kind of uplifting because it's like oh hey look look how beautiful these things are that she's seeing but on the other hand like it ends with her like frozen to death in the snow clutching a bundle of burned out matches and to me the contrast between those two things is where a lot of satire can live because both the beauty of the vision and the knowledge that actually this is you're freezing to death in the snow burning a book of matches like the contrast between those two things I, I feel like that's where the knife can go in so I like to situate things in that what I call the little match girl space I don't call it that I just coined that term right now um but in that kind of space. And also like right after the inauguration, there was this whole sort of a couple of days where it seemed like the president was like, oh, so when you become president, automatically people just like you. Like that's, it's the law, it's the rule. And then, and he was so confused when they didn't. And having to attempt to explain that that wasn't the case was fun. And also sometimes the funniest thing you can do is just take them seriously and be like, if that's true, then here's the world that you create with that. Like, One of my favorite pieces that I wrote that is in the book um, is like just the casting call for 
child crisis actors where it's like, okay, here's this kid doing a monologue being like, so here's what I think you want for this role. Like, here's my skills. I do this and this and this. But like the underlying reality of that is like, we live in a world where like children are killed by guns on a such a regular basis that people would prefer to live in an imaginary world where they're hiring actors and they would have to be cast and they would have to do this. and they have, Like just how complicated the fake world that some people are living in if you can just go through it and be like, so you're saying this and this and this and this and this, it's like horrible. But I think the joke is like pointing out how far they've floated away from reality. In terms of floating away from reality yes. and writing a book, how did you plan to go through this process on top of doing your day-to-day job? <laughs> where did you find the time? There's this great Robert Benchley piece where he's like, I'm always procrastinating. Like the way I get things done is by procrastinating on more important things. His actual quote is like, anyone can do any amount of work provided it is not the work he is supposed to be doing at the time. And I've always lived by that. So that's how every so often I will do a laundry because I've exhausted all other possible things. But I like when I come home from writing, I do like to write usually in other formats. Although like these days, like the muscle of writing columns is so built up that I'll be sitting there on the weekend. I'm like, what I need to do is work on this play because I've been working on a play that comes out in March, actually, about the Buckley-Vidal debates, but it's like in hell for a single night at the Richard Nixon Library. And I just got the new draft of that in. And it is, it's still kind of a mess, but it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine by the time it opens. What's it called? It's called Inherit the Windbag. So I like, yeah, I guess my favorite thing to do is write. And so when I'm not writing, I'm like, I should be writing. And so then I'm like, I'll say yes to that project. And Especially like with a book, you get to sort of take a step back. And when Keats died, he's like, here lies one whose name was written in water. Uh, And I feel like writing on the internet is like writing in water. And so it's nice to stop and write on paper periodically. You are absolutely fantastic at intertextual references and remembering cool stuff to say in an interview, like (laughs) rad quotes and fantastic instances and examples of things. Um, I don't know what I'm going to get from you as an answer when you start. And it's always this kind of, no, it's this great kind of moment where you, it's not even extended metaphor. It's just like you allude and then you clarify and it's really lovely. (laughs) So I'm really excited to ask you the question that I've asked, I think every single guest bar one. And that is based on your extensive knowledge of all of this cool shit. What is a piece of satire or humor in any form that you admire and what is it about it that you admire oh man i, I knew in advance that you were going to ask me this and so my mind is completely blank slash has six things in it which i think is always the way so i was like a half english half ancient greek classics major in undergrad which wound up being like a english major with a classics minor uh and so i'm an aristophanes fan i feel like i'm, I'm always the person like uh being like, we should put Aristophanes on the list, but I, I do think he <laughs> I don't know the list. anybody else who is that person, yeah. so I think you are that person in a really good way. But like, honestly, like the clouds is something that I very much enjoy because we know about Socrates and Plato because their writings have survived to us, and so this is it's just like a very funny account of here's what we think, like the objections were at the time from Aristophanes to these folks. And like, also it's just so fart heavy. Like I, what I love about like Aristophanes is just like, A, a lot of the jokes still land because they're just fart jokes. And so it's great. It's like, okay, what kind of humor is the one that like endures across time and space? And it's like anything to do with farting that, that will hold up. And the rest of it, like philosophical stuff, it's got this wonderful sort of like agon between the bad argument and the good argument. And they're fighting about 
like kids these days, like kids these days have really gone downhill. And I'm just like, oh, great. So thousands of years ago, kids these days were still going down the proverbial hill. I actually think kids are going uphill. I'm like pro Generation Z, like whatever they do, I'm just like, you, you've got a handle on it. Sorry that the world is such garbage, um, but I like your TikToks. So I, I love that. One of the pieces of writing like in recent cycles that I'm a big fan of is like Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie did this take on like Mrs. Dalloway with Melania. And I'm just like, this is, this is great. It was just, it was both things simultaneously. And so it sort of illuminated them at the same time. And I, yeah, that was a luminous piece of writing that gave me hope for the genre of like, let's tell an imagined story about these sort of political figures, which I feel like as someone who's often drawn to that, I realize it has limits. And so I try really hard not to do it unless I'm like, I respect the heck out of fan fiction as a genre, but am I just doing fan fiction? And if so, am I adding anything? She nailed it. So I thought that was a great piece. And all of text from Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. That's a very, what, what am I doing with that J? <laughs> text from Jane Eyre. Do you guys have this thing? Uh, it just reminded me completely tangentially um, about Target where if you ask somebody where they got an item of clothing from and it's from Target, Target. they say Target. Yes, yes, we, that was a thing. Excellent. And may remain a thing. Well, maybe Jane Eyre is sold yeah. at Target. Jane Eyre, Target. <laughs> yes. What do you love about texts from Jane Eyre? I just love how it tells you exactly what's going on in all of these books, but it also undercuts them in a delightful way. It's like, here's the exact truth of everything that was going on. But also, I just, I love subtext and it just like makes a subtext text and then the text is in all caps and I, that delights me beyond measure. You have a secure job writing, well, as we know, <laughs> somewhat secure job, touch wood, writing uh, political satire. You've got two books out. To many aspiring writers, you are living the dream that they would like to be. What is it now that you strive for in your life and in your work? I'm in a cool place where I both am like extremely grateful that I get to do this every day. Whenever I'm like, let me think of like, what is my dream project that I would be doing if I weren't doing this? I'm like, but if doing this is an option, I, I got to keep doing this. I feel like if I'm helping people get through their breakfasts at all, then that's useful to do. And the allure of the daily dopamine gift from seeing that you've put something out there and that somebody else has put eyeballs on it. Like that's the coolest thing in the world is like getting to make eye contact either directly or indirectly around something with someone. And so I love getting to do that every day. But when I keep thinking of like dream projects, I'm always like, well, does anyone want like a, you know, a, a Star Wars rom-com um, or like a, what of a political drama, but set in like the old Republic, which I'm like, I'm trying to adapt my dreams and goals to like the fact that Disney owns all of content and therefore I should only pitch Disney properties. Like original stuff is hard to get made. Um, I have a novel idea that I've been slowly like ticking away on that I would someday like to make. Cause I feel like the dream career is like Orwell, where it's like you get to do the daily thing, but you also make a book about pigs that really lasts. And I love pigs and I want them to last. Um, and yeah, don't think, work harder. Um, but so I think all careers are weird. And G.K. Chesterton and Stephen Colbert, I always think about a lot because they're both like people who, a lot of people grow up like wanting to do the thing that they did, 
But if you look at like when Stephen Colbert was doing the Colbert report, he was just like, what I really want to do is the thing that I dreamed of doing when I was sitting in front of the TV as a kid. And now he does that thing. And G.K. Chesterton was like, well, but the real writers are people who create novels. And so he always wanted to write like a great, but he was like doing these amazing essays. And I don't know, like amazing, like some of them don't hold up super hot. But yeah, G.K. Chesterton, shout out Gilbert Keith. But it's always funny how like the thing that you're actually doing versus the thing that you like dream of doing, like how they align. And so I keep trying not to take for granted the fact that I'm doing this thing that is a huge dream and not being like, man, if I'd, you know, made the classic film airplane, that that, that would be really the dream. <laughs> Although like a part of me is like nothing human beings make will ever be greater than the Empire Strikes Back and we're all living in the shade of that. Um, but like... That's that's it's cool that we get to be alive during it. So I don't know. I I would like to do like a thing that stands alone and isn't like about stuff that's happening. Because although I'm the person who goes to the beach and is like I'm gonna read a book of like the columns from Will Rogers' early days, I'm not sure that everyone is 100% as into that as a way of spending beach time. So I would like to write something that people would actually want to read at a beach that isn't as time pegged. Like P.G. Woodhouse, I think, took not being time-pegged a little too far, perhaps. But, like, his stuff was so, so amazing and so funny and so... Like, you can just read it no matter where or when you are and be like, this is truly a cornucopia of delight. And it would be nice to make just a pure cornucopia of delight. But I'm also like, well, but not not today. Today everything is on fire and I need to go make jokes about the fire, which I hope is helpful. Perfect. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you! That was an interview with political satirist, author, playwright, and prize-winning pun maker, Alexandra Petri. And here's this episode's reading of a comedy piece featured on the Belladonna website. Congratulations on your promotion to the position of my boyfriend. Written by Lizzie Logan. Read by Charles Sebastian. Dear Mr. Kirby, After careful consideration and a thorough review of your qualifications and job performance to date, Lizzie Logan Inc. is thrilled to offer you a promotion to the position of Lizzie's boyfriend, effective immediately. We hope that you found your four and a half weeks of freelance work as a hookup or whatever, it's casual, rewarding, and we are confident you are ready for increased responsibility within the company. Congratulations! Note that this position requires longer work hours. You will need to be available nights and weekends, and you'll be expected to return communications promptly. That is, when I text you, you have to text me back. And you can't say you didn't get my text, because that's not how phones work, Dave. Please add to your calendar the semi-annual company retreat at my mother's house. Attendance is mandatory, and bring a bottle of white Zinfandel. Your baseline sexual compensation will not increase. However, the company does offer a highly competitive incentive-based bonus program, whereby you can earn additional sexual favors through exemplary performance at tasks like being charming at brunch, patiently taking multiple photos for use on Instagram, and participating in a couple's Halloween costume, which will probably be Buffy and Angel. This promotion also entitles you to executive perks, including a per diem of kisses, unlimited spooning, and a free introduction to my hilarious friend Naomi, who is seriously the best. You may also use our corporate season tickets to the following activities. Me performing active listening while you debate whether Christopher Nolan or Paul Thomas Anderson is the heir to Stanley Kubrick. 
me pretending I don't understand baseball so you can explain it, and me tacitly agreeing that you are six feet tall, despite abundant evidence to the contrary. Previous applicants have inquired if Lizzie Logan Inc.'s strict condom every time policy is open to negotiation. It is not. It will remain in place unless, and until, our CEO finds a pill that doesn't make her feel batshit crazy. And no, the CEO is not interested in bringing an IUD into her workplace, because literally all of her friends who got IUDs inserted into their workplaces ended up with workplace cramping and workplace cysts. So please, just use a condom. It's important that you not abuse your boyfriend's status. Former team members have been let go for unacceptable behavior, such as insisting the company agree that Virginia Woolf sucks in comparison to Thomas Pynchon, and mentioning the fact that he went to Stanford way too much. Formal and informal performance reviews may occur at any time, without prior notice, and at our sole discretion. We are aware that when you interviewed with the company, you did not apply to the boyfriend position, despite knowing that it was open. We can only assume that this is because you hadn't gotten to know the company yet, and now that you've had four and a half super fun weeks here, you're ready for a commitment. Because you're basically already a full-time employee, right? Like, you do all the things a boyfriend-level employee does, so this is just making it official, right? You should also know that the boyfriend contract includes an ironclad non-compete clause. If you provide any kind of service to one of our competitors, you will be terminated for cause without recourse, and we may invoke the contract's clawback provision, whereby we reclaim my HBO Now password, all my Fleetwood Mac finals, and any nude images of me in your collection. Furthermore, your professional reputation will be publicly maligned to such a degree that it will be difficult for you to secure an attractive position at a top-tier company again. Do you get that, Dave? Everyone will know. If you feel at all unprepared for your new role, Lizzie Logan Inc. will be happy to enroll you in our industry-leading boyfriend development program, where you will learn best practices, such as stocking your refrigerator with a bevy of flavored sparkling waters, acquiring some nice sheets, and implementing a non-bong-based smoking routine. Pursuant to the company's branding strategy, grooming and sartorial standards are higher at the boyfriend level than at hookup or whatever, it's casual. Please refer to the attached documents Oscar underscore Isaac underscore hair dot JPG, Daniel underscore Kaluuya underscore style dot PDF, and Jake underscore Gyllenhaal underscore skincare dot docx. We here at Lizzie Logan Inc. are excited about your future at the company and would like to eventually put you on the husband track, if that's something you're interested in. If not, please let us fucking know so we don't waste our goddamn time. Best, Lizzie Logan. Founder and CEO, Lizzie Logan Incorporated. A division of Lady Co. Chelsea Bastion is a Chicago-based sketch comedian and a graduate of the Second City Conservatory and I.O. She tests her jokes on those whose opinions matter most, her two large orange cat sons, Higgins and Colbert. Lizzie Logan is a writer and performer. Her humour writing has been published on Reductress, McSweeney's, Above Average and The New Yorker. She was previously a pop culture writer for Glamour magazine, and her reporting has appeared on IndieWire, Split Cider, Vulture and W. She also wrote and directed a romantic comedy feature called People People, and she currently writes for the monthly sketch show Boogie Manja. 
Next time on The Antidote, we finally get off the bus. I promised we'd take to Jake Knoll's apartment back in May this year. And we sit down at the kitchen table for a conversation about how to write a web series, becoming yourself while doing stand-up, and the best celebrities to follow on Instagram. Who is your favourite vulnerable person? Oh, wow. Um, You know, right now, I think it's um, Glenn Close on Instagram. Or tell me more. <laughs> I love following older celebrities on Instagram because they do not know what they're doing. You can keep up to date with The Antidote by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or follow The Belladonna Comedy on Twitter at the underscore Belladonna's plural or find The Belladonna on Facebook or why not all of these things? Until next time.